talking tonight about marriage. We're doing this series we're calling Birds, Bees and Massive Questions. And we talked about gender last week, huge topic. And we're going into another huge topic this week called What is Marriage? Um, the, the verses we're going to read today from uh, Ephesians 5, it concludes the discussion on marriage, which we're going to look at a bit later on. And it says, this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So here's the first thing we're to understand as we delve into this subject of marriage tonight, that this isn't something that is irrelevant for you if you are single or if you're divorced or if you're, you choose not to marry or it never happens for you because actually what the Bible says is this, the earthly marriage is mirroring a far greater reality that is relevant to every single person in this room. In fact, if we read Revelation chapter 21... It gives us a picture of the end of time. And it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. It's a picture of the church in eternity. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. That's got to be one of the most amazing scriptures in the New Testament. And do you hear the language of it? It's the language of hope, of intimacy, of nearness, of union, of presence, and of comfort. And these are all the things that we long for in earthly relationships. And here's the promise of God. We sang that song, all God's promises to you are yes and amen. Here's the promise of Jesus to you, his church. He's the bridegroom, you're the bride. Sorry about that, guys. And he says, all my promises to you are yes and amen. He's looking at you saying, I am good for my promise. On a wedding day, we love it when a bride and groom, they give their promises. But the truth is, they will both not follow through, on, follow through on all of those promises. Marriages are filled with two sinful people and we, we fail in marriage. But Jesus will never fail in his promise to you. So isn't that an exciting thought as we get going? So marriage is an imperfect reflection of what will be one day for us all as Christians in eternity. So it's important that we talk about marriage because it reflects this cosmic reality. So it's relevant for us here today. Here's the second reason why it's important we talk about this. It's important for this reason that whether you're single or whether you're married, it's important that we understand one another in church life. We understand how things work. And the truth is this, we, we're, we're friends with people who are like us usually, and we understand the people who are most like us. And it's important that for single people, they understand what marriage looks like, because many of us in this room will end up married one day, maybe uh, over half of you here. And it's also important that we understand why marriage can be hard work sometimes. It's also important for married people to understand what singleness and long-term singleness feels like. That's why we're going to do a whole topic, a whole evening on that as well 
uh, which I'm so looking forward to. I'm so grateful that Alice King is going to be doing that for us in weeks to come. So we're going to get into this topic tonight. I'm aware it's a sensitive topic. It's a pastoral topic. There's many here who think, I would love to be married. There's some people here who perhaps you've experienced marriage and it hasn't been a great experience for you or it's not proving to be a great experience for you. Uh, I was going to call this talk the mystery of marriage and I thought maybe I should call it the minefield of marriage. (laughs) But let's start with uh, a diagram here. So, um, what's this? It's a circle. And here we are. It's just the simple one word. And the truth is this, when I say the word marriage, nobody in this room, I mean, I was watching your faces when, I saw, so when Luke said the word marriage, not one person in this room went sort of wide-eyed and said, what on earth is this word he's talking about? I've never heard of marriage before. Tell us about this mystery. Nobody said that because the truth is this, all of us have a perception of marriage, an understanding of marriage. And that perception, that understanding, we need to know where that comes from. It comes from four places. The first place it comes from, the first influence on your definition, your understanding of marriage, is from your upbringing. So your parents, their marriage or their lack of marriage, their relationship or their breakdown in relationship, the way they showed love for one another or didn't show love for one another, all of that probably speaks louder than any other thing about what you understand marriage to be like. That can give you positive and negative views on marriage. Here's the second influence in terms of us understanding this word marriage. We could call it society or culture. And that's just the air we breathe in our society. It's what the world is telling us about marriage. And the world has many opinions on this subject. Um, we, the, the air we breathe in our culture at the moment is, is so highly toxically individualistic that I believe if you breathe the air of this culture in this subject enough, then it will be impossible for you to find marriage fulfilling because marriage is all about self-gratification and self-fulfillment in the eyes of the world these days. People talk about finding their soulmate, the person who will love them and understand them and appreciate them perfectly. Such a person does not exist in this world. Yeah, that's the air we breathe. Tim Keller said this popular view, ironically, this post-enlightenment view of marriage actually puts a crushing burden of expectation on spouses in a way that more traditional understandings never did. And it leaves us desperately trapped between unrealistic longings for and terrible fears about marriage. He also says, both men and women today see marriage not as a way of creating character and community, but as a way of reaching personal life goals. They are looking for a marriage partner who will fulfill their emotional, sexual, and spiritual desires. And that creates an extreme idealism that in turn leads to a deep pessimism that you will ever find the right person to marry. That's the kind of air we're breathing in our society. And that's not helpful. 
And just as upbringing cannot be a helpful thing, the Bible says when you marry, it says a husband, uh, it says a, a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife. So actually upbringing is a secondary thing. We should never let that overly shape what our understanding of marriage is. Similarly to this, society, culture, government, all these things may have a voice about marriage. They might have opinions about marriage, but that's not to be the primary thing that shapes us. Here's the third thing that shapes our understanding of marriage, and that's personal experience. So if you get married, you will have an understanding of what that feels like, what that looks like, good, bad, indifferent. Those things shape our understanding of marriage. But here's the one that we can't forget. And it's God's word. And this is what we're talking about tonight. We're wanting to be shaped more than anything. All of these things are variable. There would not be any agreement in this room about these three things. But on this thing, we can actually look at what the Bible teaches, what the Word of God teaches. And we use that as the basis for marriage. Jesus once told a parable about uh, two builders. One of them built their house on the sand, and one of them built their house on the rock. You might remember the nursery rhyme about it. And what happened to the house on the sand? It fell flat when the rains came. The house on the rock stood firm. And Jesus said, the person who builds their house on the rock, that's the person who hears my word and puts it into practice. So here's the reality. As we talk about this subject tonight, I will say some things that the Bible says that you might find controversial. You might find unacceptable. You may even find offensive. But the thing is, truth isn't defined by our likes or dislikes. And we do well to build our lives on the rock. So just to show you where we're at as a nation in terms of marriage, a couple of quick stats. Um, you know, we invest, we seem to value our wedding day more than we marriage, uh, value marriage itself. We typically spend in Scotland £29,900 £29,900 on a typical average wedding day. Now, I know how much some of you spent, so there must be a lot of people spending a lot more than you. <laughs> Here's another stat about marriage. We're choosing to marry later and later as, uh, as a country. The average age of men getting married is now 33, first-time marriage. The average age of women is 31, and that's increasing all the time. In 1981, the average age was 23. We're getting older and older when we choose to marry. But here's the thing as well. Fewer and fewer of us are choosing to marry. The, the marriage rate has declined about 23% in the last 20 years. 51% of the current adult population of Scotland is married. 35% of us are single. And that's increased by 5% in 12 years. And then there's another group of those cho choosing to cohabit rather than to marry, that's risen from 7% to 10% in that same period. Not only that, but the decline in marriage is also impacting family life because 50% of children in Scotland are now born to unmarried parents, compared with 8% in the 1970s. And that impacts family life because the statistics of cohabiting couples breaking up is far, far higher than married couples of parents who are breaking up. 
So that's the culture we live in. That's the culture we're raised in. That's the culture that we're affected by. That's the culture of our friends and us and all of those things. And the first thing we need to know about marriage is this, that it's going to be a messy business. And when you read the Bible, although it gives us a model and an ideal for what life should look like as a married person, the truth is this, all of us will fall short of that. And all of us need God's grace in our lives. The Bible never, Jesus never simply bangs us on the head with the Bible, but he, he gives us grace. He gives us help. When you read the Bible, you find many, many people who struggle in marriage and get it wrong. You find people who, who cause trouble for themselves in this area. And yet, they're in God's story. God's grace works through their life. And it's my firm conviction that God works through the mess of marriage in our world to bring people to know him. So, we're going to talk about a Christian view on marriage tonight. Um, I know there's a lot of groundwork I'm doing here. Uh, let me just say a very brief comment on singleness versus marriage. Here's something I'm saying about marriage. I'm not saying it's for everyone. Uh, Jesus wasn't married. Paul wasn't married as far as we know. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7, Paul makes this comment. Uh, pop it on the screen, please, Tim. He says, each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And he's talking about marriage or the gift of singleness, the gift of marriage. And he says, you need to know what you are and pursue the thing that you feel God, the gift that you feel God is giving you. Um, I'm not also saying, I'm also not saying that it's better than being single. Both singleness and marriage have unique benefits and unique challenges. And it's important to say that marriage isn't a cure for singleness. It doesn't, it, it, I, I know just as many unhappy married people as I know unhappy single people. So, there can be a temptation sometimes to think, well, if love just came my way, then my life would change and I'd be a happier person. The truth is this, that happiness is found in Jesus, whether you're single or whether you're married. Marriage is a wonderful blessing. Anyway, um, I'm not also, and also I'm not saying that our view as Christians must be endorsed by society. Obviously, we believe this is the right thing revealed by God, but uh, th that's not what we're, where we're going with this tonight. Proverbs 18 says this, it says, he who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. That's to say that marriage is a godly desire. There was a, there was a teaching back in the 15th, 16th century Catholic church which was to say that marriage was somehow an earthly kind of thing that wasn't very spiritual. So the reformers, people like Mar uh, Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin, they rejected this form of teaching because the Catholic Church at the time only allowed celibate single people to rise into leadership in the churches as priests. And they said, no, no, this isn't right. Marriage and singleness, they're both spiritual things. And marriage is a wonderful blessing from God. Finding a spouse can be a painful, vulnerable, disappointing thing at times, but here's what the Bible says. It's a blessing. It's worthwhile. It's you receive favor from God. It's a means of God pouring his grace and love and mercy into our lives. 
when we find a spouse who we can love and who will love us in return. So let's look at these verses from Ephesians 5. And I'm going to make four observations of what I believe the Bible teaches about marriage. So this is Ephesians 5. It starts with this verse, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Well, I'm glad there's nothing at all controversial in that passage (laughs) for us to deal with tonight. So, in these verses, Paul quotes from the original marriage in the book of Genesis between the first man and the first woman. When he says, the two shall become one flesh, he's quoting exactly the same phrase that we find in Genesis chapter 3. And Jesus, by the way, also quotes exactly that same verse in Matthew chapter 19, two becoming one flesh. Now, these readings between Genesis 3 and Ephesians 5 cover thousands of years of cultures, differing cultures, differing places, different understandings of marriage and the places they were written. And yet, in whichever culture the Bible's written to, here's the the message being reinforced, that this is God's view of marriage. And it was between one man and one woman. And there was a lot of other things going on in their day. If you were to look in uh, Leviticus 18, where, where... where uh, the, the people of Israel are being commanded about how to uh, not to intermarry with other nationalities around them. You find that there's all sorts of practices going on. Cultures where polygamy, where paedophilia, where sex with family members and animals were all acceptable. And God says, no, that's, that's not how it's to be. That's not how it's to be in the people of God. God's definition of marriage is unchanged, even when cultures around change their understanding. The first 14 Roman emperors considered themselves bisexual or gay, two choosing to marry same-sex partners. Yet that culture in which the Bible was written, where Paul wrote these verses for us, he doesn't give that his endorsement. He says, a man 
and a woman. Tim Keller defines marriage this way as we begin to understand the the basis of it. He says, marriage is a lifelong monogamous relationship between a man and a woman. According to the Bible, God devised marriage to reflect the saving love for us in Christ, to refine our character, to create a stable human community for the birth and nurture of children, and to accomplish all this by bringing the complementary sexes into an enduring whole life union. I want to touch on four areas which I think help us understand what marriage is, so that as you're making decisions for your life, I know many of you here wouldn't be married, and you'll be thinking, well, maybe I'd like to be married one day. Perhaps this talk will put you off. Perhaps it will encourage you. I hope it may encourage you, or I hope it may help you think, you know what, I think God might call me to be single with my life, which is also a wonderful gift. But here's one of the observations we can make about marriage from these verses we read tonight. Firstly, that marriage requires a complete change of your life to becoming one flesh. That doesn't sound like a minor transition. That is life change for anybody who chooses to marry. Marriage changes the priority of all other things in our life whether that be the jobs we do or the friendship circles we keep, the hobbies we enjoy or the holidays we take. Such is the nature of marriage. It's one person saying to another, you know what, I'm not the most important thing in my life anymore. You are. It's a total change of life in that we're constantly told that everything's our personal decision these days. It's our personal thing. Marriage is in no way personal. It's deeply personal in the sense of intimacy. We'll come on to that. But it's a public statement. When two people get married, there's a big show, isn't there? Everybody comes. You invite the family. You invite your friends. There's a big party. Because what you're saying is this. We are going public with this. We're not being secret about it. And that's why it's messy when married couples break up because... It's a public thing. I remember chatting to a guy some years ago, counseling a couple who had been committing adultery on his wife, and, and the, the totally weird thing was he was trying to keep it under wraps from Christian brothers and sisters. He said, well, yeah, I don't want to embarrass myself. He'd been taking his girlfriend to work dues for years. He'd been doing a public thing. Marriage is public, not just personal. Here's another thing in this total change. It changes the very primary roles we have in life. To worship Jesus, certainly that's our, our, everybody's calling, but how we do that is massively different if you're married than if you're single. And on this final thing on this total life change is this, that it requires hard work. The Bible's full of instruction. We read a load of verses about marriage for this reason that there's no such thing as a soulmate. There's no such thing as somebody who you just click with naturally all the time. There's no such thing as just uh, somebody getting you without any kind of need for dialogue or work or misunderstanding. Marriage requires a husband and a wife to speak to one another and to understand one another. It's not something that comes easily and naturally. 
Here's the second thing we can observe about marriage from these verses. It's about covenantal, intimate love. Marriage is the place where intimacy and sex is a beautiful thing. It's a place where sex is worshipful and acceptable to God. In fact, marriage is the only safe and secure bond where sexual intimacy is to be enjoyed within that faithful, exclusive commitment between those two people. In fact, the Bible says that sex outside of these boundaries is dangerous and destructive and can oftentimes be purely self-centered. Marriage is a covenant. It's an agreement. It's two people laying aside all other loves for the sake of one another. In the Bible, in the New Testament, there's four Greek words used for love. Uh, Storge, which means affection. Philia, which is brotherly, sisterly type love. Eros, which is romantic love. And agape, which is unconditional love. You can know something of those loves in all sorts of areas. Affection, brotherly, sisterly love, romantic love, unconditional love. But only in marriage do you promise somebody that you will always love them unconditionally. And that word agape is the same word used in the New Testament almost all the time to talk about God's love for us. So when a couple marry and they show unconditional love for one another, no matter what the other person is doing to reciprocate that love, they're showing the kind of love that God loves us with. Uh, Tim Keller again makes this profound comment. He says, when we first fall in love with someone, he says, we don't actually love them. He says, we love the idea of them. He says, because the truth is this, we, we don't really know them enough. We love what we see of them. We love what we know of them. But he said it's impossible to love that person fully because simply we don't know everything about them. And it's only in marriage. He says, where over time, over a lifetime, you learn to love the person for who they really are. When the barriers drop and, and when they, you come to understand more of their motivations and what makes them tick. He estimates that in your married life, over a lifetime, you will have to learn to fall in love with your marriage partner three or four times. Because actually, there will be things about them that are just totally different. Here's the observation. Often, people who fall out of marriage, they say this, they say, well, the trouble is you've changed. And it's not that person's changed, it's that we didn't actually know them as well as we thought we did. And actually, we need to learn to love them unconditionally with agape love for who they are. And this is the kind of covenant that God calls us to in love, and it's a wonderful and powerful thing. Here's the third thing we can say about marriage. In Genesis 1, verse 27, when God created mankind in his own image, male and female, he says he blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over every living creature. So there's this idea going around these days that marriage is just two people who are really into each other. A commitment by any two people, as long as they love each other, that's marriage. The Bible says more than that. It says that marriage 
Yes, it's about one another and loving and serving one another, but it's also about expansion. It's about using your new family unit to love and serve the world according to God's purposes. In most cases, that will mean God blessing with biological children. It says, fill the earth. It's it's a normal and godly thing for a couple to bear children and to expand their family. When you're in your young married years, or if you're unable to have children, that will be fulfilled in other ways, opening up your home, perhaps through adoption or fostering. But here's the heart behind marriage. It's about expansion. It's not two people giving kind of just adoration to one another. It's an inclusive kind of love. Human beings, I heard somewhere, are are the slowest, certainly one of the slowest mammals to develop emotionally, physically, socially, mentally of any creature. It needs long-term care and commitment to raise a child. And that's why marriage is the right place for that. Here's the fourth and final thing about marriage. It's a partnership of equals. We read these verses, and the room went quiet. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then the room went very quiet. It said, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. And let me just say a couple of things before we get into this. Firstly, that there's no generic statement here being made about men and women. And it's really important that you see that. Nowhere in the Bible does it say, women submit to men. But there's something about this marriage relationship where we need to just dig a little bit deeper here to understand. Here's the other thing. So as soon as we hear the word submit in our culture these days, it's like a blue light goes off. Because it sounds wrong. Especially when you you live in a country or a part of the world where there's a history of, of, of women being underpaid, undervalued, frequently overlooked, not having the vote for large portions of history. Well, anything that seems to endorse chauvinism is clearly wrong in my book, and chauvinism is a sin. That's not what is being talked about in these verses. And to help us understand what is being talked about, it probably helps us to look at the husband's role first, okay? So we're going to come back to that verse in just a moment. This is the instruction to husbands. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. Here's the instruction being given to men. Husbands are to love wives in such a self-sacrificial way that it imitates how Jesus laid down his life for humanity and in particular for his church. Here's another thing that's being said. Wives are to be such objects of a husband's affection and desire that he, the husband, will use all of his power to make sure her needs are met and also that she becomes the greatest woman she can be in the image of God. 
His role is to help her with character issues, insecurities and sins that stop her getting on in life. Here's another thing that's being said in those verses, that men, I love how the Bible puts this, men are usually pretty good at looking out for themselves. It's just true. I mean, it's a general truth. Not every man is like this. But when we did marriage prep many years ago with an older couple in the church, both Julie and I had to fill a budget in for our, our proposed married life. And, and there was a lot of areas, and we just had to write it out. And then we, we sort of shared ideas. And Julie had filled it in for both of us, and I'd filled it in for me. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and then the couple we were doing marriage with, they laughed, and they said, always happens. Every time the guy does it for himself, the wife does it for both of them. It's just generally true. And the Bible in these verses says, husbands, love your wives as your own body. Guys, you know how to look after yourself. You're pretty good at that. Make sure you do what you do for yourself, for your wife instead. So husbands are to lay their lives down sacrificially for their wife as Christ does for the church. Let me ask you the question. Does the husband have an easy job or a hard job? Hard. Hard. Tell anybody you have to love somebody like Jesus loves them. That's a hard job. The men aren't getting off easy here. This is, this is a job that's impossible for the husband to do, but by the grace of God. His job is to model Christ-like servant leadership. His authority is not given to serve himself, but the interest of his wife. Here's the trouble in our culture. You mentioned the word leader. Everybody immediately thinks alpha male leader. Those horrible people you see on The Apprentice every year who just want the world to revolve around them. And people say, no thanks, don't want that in my marriage. It'd be a disaster, that kind of leadership. Servant leadership isn't that kind of leadership. Servant leadership is about preferring another and using every skill set you have to serve another, just like Jesus does to his church. So then, on the back of that, Wives, submit to your husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So her job, her role within the marriage that makes the marriage work is to reciprocate to him and say, well, you're laying down your life for me. You're making decisions in our best interests and my best interests. How am I going to respond to that? I'm going to say yes. I'm going to say yes. If you're going to love me with that kind of love, then I will give my heart to you. Just as Jesus, who in every way is equal to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, took the role of submission to his Father's will, he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. So a Christian wife models Christ-likeness to her husband. Now, let's just understand this correctly. Submission never, ever simply means to be compliant, merely compliant, but it means this, to use 
A wife is to use her resources to empower him in their marriage. A wife is her husband's most trusted friend and counsellor, and he is hers. Marriage takes a lot of give and take. So here's the truth. If a, if a husband doesn't listen to his wife, then he is not loving her. If he acts superior in things that she knows clearly more about than him, he is not loving her. Paul says respect for the husband's role is an important ingredient for the wife, but we must agree that he needs to be worthy of that respect in his heart for their marriage. In Genesis chapter 2, the, that, that role is unpacked more. I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm aware we've gone over time. I just need another five minutes if that's, if that's okay. Um, and uh, in Genesis 2, when, when it talks about God creating Adam and Eve, it talks about Adam and it, it says that, he know, that God saw that Adam was alone and it, and it wasn't good. He says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. Again, the blue lights start going off in the room. You know, you're saying that the woman is a helper? That sounds so demeaning. Well, you know, the Holy Spirit is called the helper. In Psalm 33, verse 12, it says, We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our helper. In Psalm 70, verse 5, it says, You are my helper and my deliverer, Lord. Matthew Henry, in a well-known quote, said, the woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Eve was made to be Adam's equal, but that doesn't mean they have the same role. That's the thing we need to get used to in our world today. Equality doesn't mean same role just as God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Spirit are equal but have different roles. So, it's an equal partnership. Very briefly, if you are choosing to get married, make sure you marry somebody who you see as your equal. Not somebody who you think is a fixer-upper. Not somebody that you think just needs a bit of pulling along in life. Make sure that you marry somebody who is your equal, who will challenge you, and you can challenge. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, not exclusively about marriage, but he says, don't be yoked to unbelievers. The picture is of oxen going around in circles because one of them is stronger than the other. Make sure that you marry equally, especially in the realm of spiritual life. Make, if you're a Christian, make sure you marry a Christian who loves Jesus in equal measure to you. Otherwise, it will prove difficult and unproductive. Some final comments here. Let me just make a few pastoral bits because I know I've said a lot of information there, but um, let me just give you a few things here to help you because I'm, I'm aware that for some of you here, you're thinking about these sorts of decisions as to whether you will get married. Point one, take time to figure this out. Take time to think about it. Secondly, for all of us, give space to other people as they figure this out. Christian community is often the most pressured place to work out relationships. Have you ever found that? Because everybody seems to know what's going on with everybody else. Let's, let's give one another a gift and say, you know what, I'm not going to ask too many questions when I see a, 
a man talking to a woman or, or them smiling or having a joke together. Let's encourage male-female friendships wherever we can and not assume something is going on. Thirdly, find ways to pursue romance in non-threatening ways. The Bible doesn't have loads on this, but I'm reminded how, how Ruth uh, hung out in Boaz's field in the book of Ruth because she wanted to get noticed by him. She wasn't throwing herself in his face, but she was just hanging around. It's a helpful thing. Don't you hate it when married people give advice on this stuff? I'm sorry. Uh, fourth thing. Take your disappointments to God. Disappointment, in every case I know, is part of the journey of coming to marriage. Every time. But God can deal with those disappointments. Fifthly, know that God will never hold back from you what is ultimately for your best, whether you end up being married or staying single. Know this, that God knows what's right for you, and he loves you, and he's got your best at heart. If you're married here today, then here's the instruction earlier on in Philippians to do with your marriage. Be filled with the Holy Spirit because it's a tough gig and you need power from God. Here's the second thing if you're married. Know that you will fall short of Christ's servant standard and his submissive example. Therefore, you need his grace and his help. And here's the third thing. Don't, fo don't focus on your spouse's role. Focus on your own. And make sure that you are worshipping Jesus with your role as best as you can. And ask your spouse how you're doing. That's always a good question to ask. Final point here. that Everything we're talking about here tonight is worship. We were singing songs of worship earlier. You know, marriage is worship. Singleness is worship. Our lives are worship. So here's the single response. If you're going to do one thing from today, I want to ask you to trust God with your life. Whether you're single or married. In Hebrews 11 is an almighty long list of names of people that we've never met. But when you go through that list, you find some people were married, some people were single, some people were old, some people were young, some people had loads of children, some people never had children. Some of them were separated, some of them were put in prison, some of them their lives were cut short. But Hebrews 11 makes this comment about all of them. It says, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what was promised, since God had planned something better for us, so only together with them, together with us, they would be made perfect. What I'm saying is this, the one thing they made, they didn't care about what life circumstance they were in, the thing they cared about was this, that they kept trusting God wherever they were. And this is God's invitation to you today, to trust him, to believe him, to know that he's in control of your life and that he has a destiny for you and I. Let's just finish in prayer. So Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for an opportunity to look at your word, to worship you, to be filled with your spirit, to draw close to you. Lord, I want to thank you for not just leaving human beings to get on with it in our own strength and to make our own way, but you give us this, these wonderful gifts of marriage and singleness. And I, I just want to pray for each person here, Lord, that they'd know that very thing that you want for them and that you'd give them the grace for it. 
Help us, Lord, where we struggle with these things. Help us where we find it difficult, where societal pressures and all those things. I pray, Lord, just give us crystal clear clarity in our hearts. Give us love for you and help us to always trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, that's us done for tonight. Sorry we've overrun there. Um, do stick around, chat. I'm happy to answer questions or if uh, we, we may answer questions another week. I don't know as well. So, um, so if, if you, you can email, you can text, you can chat to us. But thanks for coming and uh, see you soon.